It certainly is an exciting Sunday morning, isn't it? And all of them are. But to come together in the sweetness of a day such as this one, to appreciate the handiwork of God's creation in so many ways, and how wonderful it is that He has allowed us to assemble today to offer to Him the heartfelt appreciation of worship that you and I would no doubt wish to give Him today. It certainly would be fair to say as we come to this part of our service today that we're going to consider a text that was just read in our hearing a moment ago in Mark chapter 4. If you would, be turning to that chapter and we will in just a minute start reflecting on some of the features we find in a powerful way in that verse. I might suggest as we move in that direction, Brother Dennis pointed out something to me a moment ago. I'd made a statement in the Bible study class about the word suppose. I had overlooked one of the occurrences, so I need to make a correction. A text in Luke chapter 7 is something where someone did make a supposition that turned out to be true. So you might want to read verses 41 to 43 of that chapter and be blessed by what Peter asserted on that occasion. But my apology for mistakenly stating concerning that word suppose. They took Jesus, they took Him as He was. Today, we each understand that what a sweet, sweet opportunity to reflect on Jesus Christ. Much of the world today, no doubt, is doing that and has already done that. And it's a remarkable thing to, to appreciate. We can never think too much about Jesus. We can never, in fact, give too much consideration to Him. And yet today, you and I look forward every Sunday to doing that. And today, we're going to talk for the next few moments about something that happened at one time in His life. And we'll try to use that to bless our lives as well as we strive to live day by day in a way more acceptable to Him. This opening slide will be an introductory one, which I would simply ask you to appreciate this with me. We often are amazed as we read about His miracles and to see that which He was able to do. Sometimes it was miracles related to something of a weather-related thing. He could steal a storm. Or in fact, He otherwise could do something remarkable relative to what otherwise is a natural phenomenon. But there were other times when He acted in a way in a benefit to the human family. He could heal a blind man. He could heal a lame man. He could also otherwise heal any kind of infirmity of the flesh. I suspect that the miracle that's a part of our lesson text today is one that we often are amazed with as we contemplate Him stealing a storm. But there's another aspect of what's presented to us that's really interesting, so much so that it's the title of the lesson. They took Him as He was. It is with that in mind, let me invite you to close this particular introductory slide and simply observe that we're going to talk about that 36th verse in some detail in just a moment. To do so, as you and I contemplate taking Jesus as He is, let's build a lesson around that in the following way. I think it wise that we take just a moment and rehearse the setting so that we make sure to never take that which is said out of the context in which it's found. You appreciate that the details develop like this. The Lord, in much of that fourth chapter, had been teaching in dramatic parables. Some of the most well-known parables are found here. A parable of the sower of the seed, for example. But to say that, if we quickly observe that, as the day began to wind its way along, 
I've tried to highlight on that slide. The text says that late in the day, Jesus made an assertion. He made a declaration that went like this, Let us pass over unto the other side. They were on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, you see. That's where the Lord had taught those parables. And now He suggested, He basically asserted, Let's pass over to the other side. In the aftermath of that assertion, I've asked you to note the following. They sent the multitude away. And the text then says that they, of course, in a ship proceeded across the Sea of Galilee. But, much to their chagrin, a great storm arose. It's at this point, let me invite you to listen as I read. Since it's only a few verses, listen to what happened when the storm arose. I'll start reading in verse number 36. And when they had sent the multitude away, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little boats. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I suspect that in our imagination we can at least picture some of that. We can imagine having been there witnessing it. We can imagine what it would have been like to be on that ship and in the midst of this storm that so suddenly arose to find ourselves with a heart beating rather fast, getting a little bit scared, just like those apostles did. You'll notice, though, about the bottom of that slide. All the while this storm had arisen, and our Master, the text says, was asleep. He was in the hinder part of the ship. Those who are familiar with shipmen's terms would call that the stern, probably. He was on the stern of the ship, asleep on a pillow. You'll note the storm hadn't waked him up. You'll notice that other features or the hectic character of what was taking place on the ship hadn't yet awakened him. They purposefully come to him and arouse him from sleep. And they say, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? Doesn't it bother you that our life is hanging in the balance here? That wording of verses 36, 37, and 38 quickly leads us to know that the matter was dispensed with rather quickly. The text says in verse 39, he arose. Apparently, he got up from his sleep. And the verse says, he rebuked the wind, and he said something to the sea. Peace be still. We might at least pause and say, in light of that connection, that there are many lessons that might be extracted from that that could be of great benefit to each of us. And we will develop a few of them as we proceed along in the lesson this morning. At the very least, could I not ask you now to note the following. After rebuking those things, he also turned and spoke to his own apostles. And he challenged them, Why are you of such little faith? They had seen him in a number of miracles over the previous years. 
They had witnessed his events, and now they, apparently, Jesus said, did not have enough faith. What about you and me today? How's our faith? How's yours? Is our faith languishing, being sufficiently weak to not allow us to overwhelm the hurdles that the devil so often brings in our way? It is a good question, isn't it? These apostles were those who had eyewitnessed many of the things he had done, and he still challenged them. Could I offer the thought he challenges all of us as well? That our faith might be lively and strong and fortified, and a faith that would allow us to be equipped to encounter those challenges of life. One last thing on that slide then would be this. And it is the statement around which the lesson this morning is built. You may have noticed it as I read it, and probably it would be easy to read past it. So may I read it again, verse 36. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was, in the ship. What does it mean that they took him even as he was? I wonder what significance attaches to that. In fact, wouldn't it be fair to say that the Holy Spirit has not put any needless words into the Bible? The Holy Spirit directed those inspired writers to write what they did, and there are no wasted words. There must be some significance to this. What does it mean that they took Him even as He was? May I suggest that that concept and that thought will be a very great one to benefit you and me today. And so, to reinforce it, I've asked you to note the way some other translations read that section of that verse. In the ESV, the English Standard Version, the verse reads, And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. On the other hand, the 1901 American Standard Translation reads it like this, And leaving the multitude, they take him with them even as he was in the boat. And other boats were with him. You'll notice that all of these translations have that particular phrase in it. They took him as he was. As you and I close that slide, then let's make a few quick observations before we launch into the greater part of the lesson. First of all, they took him even as he was. It would seem that one of the initial observations would then be this. Have you and I noted where was the master when he was teaching those parables we noted earlier? That parable of the sower of the seed, for example. If you'd like to look back to verse number 1 of Mark chapter 4, we'll have our answer. Earlier, we find this interesting piece of information. And he began to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land." You can picture that as this throng gathered around the master, the crowd being sufficiently large, he entered into a vessel, a boat, launched a short distance from shore, so that there he would have a better view of the audience, and they would have a better view of him, and be able to hear that which he was saying. The Lord thus taught these parables while he himself was sitting in a boat, while he himself was in fact on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. And with that in mind, as the chapter proceeds, we now come to verse 36. 
Nothing has changed in terms of his location, in terms of his circumstance. And now it says, they took him even as he was. May I suggest this? The Lord was teaching on that ship, on that boat. He had given the order then that it was his desire to pass to the other side, and they, he and those disciples, proceeded across the Sea of Galilee. They took him as he was, meaning they went and made no extra accommodations. They went and made no additional preparation for the journey. They left at that particular moment in time and proceeded across the sea. You might pause and notice what a dramatic thing that was. After all, he had been teaching and they no doubt had not made any particular accommodations for a journey across the sea. And yet, based only upon his wording and only on that which he had asserted, they were ready to leave at once and launch to the other side. They took him as he was. They didn't interject what they thought would be better in preparation. They didn't interject what they thought might have been a preferred order or procession across the sea. They took him as he was. With that in mind, what are some applications then that could be beneficial to you and me today? As you and I strive to take him as he is. At the top of this slide, you'll notice a comment. A comment that is by no means any great revelation, but it's certainly one that will have a bearing on our lesson. Isn't it interesting that in the opening chapter of the Bible, we're told that God made man in His image? Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. And I would perhaps suggest that ever since that time, it has been the desire of many of the human family to make God in man's image. We want to tell God what to do. We want to insist on our preferences in God despite what you've said. I think I'm going to do it my way, and I just trust you're going to like it. That's what I mean by that statement. Man so often tries to make God in man's image when God made it the other way around. It is with that in mind. Let's make these observations. They took Jesus as He was. They didn't insist upon that which was their preference. They took Him as He was. Could I offer this thought that we each are demanded, we must take Jesus as He is. We too must take Him as He is. What about point number one? When it comes to matters related to truth, we noted in the Bible study hour at one time this morning how that there are times that the concept seems so unpleasant. There are many who don't particularly like the thought of truth because it's too restrictive, you see. It is that which places demands on me dictated by someone else, in this case God. When we so often would prefer my conveniences and my preferences and to do things my way, after all, didn't Frank Sinatra's most famous song say, I did it my way? Well, that may have been a popular song, but it's not biblically true. We can do it our way, but that won't please God. So let's develop a few points in consideration about that. Jesus said it like this in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
Although that may seem so narrow, it doesn't change the fact it's true, does it? Although that may seem so restricted, it does not change the fact that it is correct. It's accurate. Jesus is the truth. And thus, we must accept Him as He is if we are to have the truth. That which I assert, or perhaps you, will not be the truth unless it is that which the Lord has asserted. If you and I then are to have it, we must accept Jesus as He is and take Him that way. On that particular slide, isn't it so that the Lord came to bring the truth to you and me? In John chapter 1, early on in that gospel account, you might take note particularly of some of the verses I have asked you to consider with me. In verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, you and I realize that's speaking about Jesus the Christ. He became flesh, dwelt among us, but the verse goes on to say, He presented to us that which is truth. Three verses later, the Son of God, Jesus, of course, came to bring grace and truth. Today, aren't you and I thankful for the truth that He has brought? How that we need not rest upon the speculation of mankind. As we've noted already that today, many in our world have turned their attention in some way to Jesus and perhaps specifically His resurrection. And yet, you and I realize that the grandeur of that which is truth centers on Him. Oh, how we love it. We're so thankful for it. In Luke 9, verse number 27, the statement is made that again, as the Lord brought truth, He spoke that, He declared it. It never ceases to be a remarkable thing, does it? That until the time shall be no more, all the truth that we have of greatest relevance will be truth the Master has brought. And we must take Him as He is. May we never make the attempt to tell the Master how He needs to change things because it's more to our liking. One last thing on that slide then would be, consider the host of applications one might make of this. When it comes to matters of salvation, to matters of worship, to matters of personal daily character, all of this is dictated by the Master. We must take Him as He is. If we would live pleasingly in light of those things... What about another lesson? Not only in light of this, consider another thing that we might consider, and it's this one. I've entitled it Cross. Isn't it so that perhaps many thought about the cross, especially earlier in this past week? Many in the world, of course, gave an emphasis to the supposed Holy Week. May I be quick to say that we rest in the lovely blessing of appreciating the first day of every week. We surround the Lord's table. It's in that way, Jesus said. We remember His body. We remember His blood. And so we're honored to do that every first day of the week. And no doubt, as a faithful Christian, we often spend reflective time thinking of what the Master did for us. When it comes to the word cross... Could I offer you this thought? There would have been no resurrection if there had been no crucifixion. There would have been no arising on the Sunday if there hadn't been a death the previous Thursday. 
we understand so easily that as the Bible details these things, how sweet it is to know what Jesus did for us. But there are some who consider the cross a foolish thing. I say that almost with a hurtful heart. There are those who perhaps have ever been the case who honestly look upon the cross in foolishness. I say it that way because Paul said it that way. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 18, Paul said, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. It's a sad thing that some will look upon the cross with foolishness. They'll look upon it with less than the intensity which it deserves. And in so doing, they will see in it that which is far removed from what it actually is. To see the preaching of the cross in that light makes you notice that Paul even strengthened that language in Philippians 3.18. He there would say, speaking to the church in Philippi, that there are those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Do you believe it? That there are people who are enemies of the cross. Oh, I hope that none of us will ever begin to live in a way in which it could be said of us, we are living as an enemy of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is the single greatest stamp of message the world has ever known about the love of God, about the enormity of sin, and about what God would wish us to be right with Him. As far as proceeding through that slide, then notice, we can make an easy application of this. We've got to take Jesus as He is. That means we too must take the cross that is laid before us. I say that because the wording of verses like this point us in that direction. Luke 9, 23. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. We all, if we at least have reached any somewhat moderate age, know very well the world will not be a friend to Christianity. The things in your life or mine will meet their challenges, and there will be those who will say things and do things, often hurtful things. We must take up our cross. Never allow anything that someone else may do along that line to separate us from the love of God, because heaven is worth too much. And our clinging to the Master is too great. That means we've got to take our cross. May we never, ever give up on Jesus. There were some in the Hebrew letter that had reached that point. They were unwilling to accept the kind of persecution they were then being asked to face and said, I'm going to leave the Lord behind and go do something else. You'll lose your soul if you do that. So too will I. We cannot give up on Christ. Remember, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Thus, we got to take Jesus as He is. That means to bear the cross that we're called upon to bear. The challenges and whatever the difficulties are, with the Lord's help, we'll overwhelm them. Because we are always led in triumph in Christ. To borrow the words of 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14. What about in the third place? Not only taking Jesus as He is, demanding that that, of course, involves the cross. And not only does it demand, of course, the issues that we've developed previously, but doesn't it demand this one, the church? 
it demands the church to take Jesus as He is means that we appreciate and accept the church in the way that He's presented it to us. Let's develop that point in the following way. I've asked you to consider on that slide some initial observations that are evident. The church doesn't belong to us. The church belongs to Him. It's His. He bought it. He purchased it. He built it. Consider some of these verses with me, please. In Matthew 16, 18, I, He said, will build My church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In Acts 20, 28, speaking to the elders of the church, you might recall Paul to them said, Take heed to yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. He purchased it. That means when it comes to the church, we have to take it the way that He organized it and take it with the firmness and the character that He gave it. It's not our business to change it, to try to reorganize it in a way that perhaps would make more sense to us. If we do that, we pervert it. If we do that, we do great damage and harm. The next point you'll notice on that slide is then the powerful premise of Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. So not only this day, this first Sunday in April of the year 2021, but all the time, we desire to take it the way the Lord left it. To take it, to take Him the way that He designed it. These kind of thoughts, you see, are not original by any means with me. As we've seen in a host of verses, they are embedded in the character of the Word of God. The development then that follows is to remind us of this. This kingdom of which we're a part, this beautiful church of the Lord, this kingdom is not of this world. I realize that there's an element in that that can be a bit challenging. We all live in this world to be sure. But our prime motivation Our sense of belonging, our ultimate citizenship is not here. We look for a far better place than this. We look for a far more peaceful and directed place under the banner of the truth of God. And so when we apply that to the church, no wonder we can easily recall what Jesus Himself said. In John 18, verse 36, you may recall He was standing trial at that time. It was less than one day before He'd be crucified. Less than a day. His life, and he knew it was soon in this flesh to end. And Pilate was able to have conversation with him. As a part of that conversation, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. He said, If it were, my servants would fight. You may remember Jesus told Peter, Put up your sword. That's not going to avail in this matter. Today, All these centuries later, His kingdom is still not of this world. We sojourn here for a while, but our citizenship is elsewhere. We look for that place whose builder and maker is God. The sweetness of that concept leads me to close that slide like this. To take Jesus as He is, we then understand He has the right to determine who enters and who does not enter the church. 
the terms of entrance He has specified, and aren't we thankful? With longing and excited hearts, we should be able to rush through that as we do that which the Master has commanded. The detailed organization of the church, all the other features that might be listed. Question, if we take Him as He is, won't we accept these as He's delivered them? and proceed in faith to simply follow His instruction. It might well be today that in this assembly, there's one or more who would need to respond to the invitation of the Lord. That is to say, to have arrived at a point in life when as a picture of the cross portrays the Son of God dying for me and for you, shedding sinless blood because of my sin. In that position, you need to almost race down this aisle today. Don't be nervous. We, with excited arms of rejoicing, will surround you with love and encouragement as we assist you in obeying the gospel. To do that, you need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. I know that we've asserted many in our world today have turned their attention in one way or another to His resurrection. You've got to believe in Him, absolutely. He did say in John 8, 24, Except ye believe I am He, ye shall die in your sins. But that belief alone is not enough to save because of texts like John 12, verses 41 and 42. You must repent of your sins. You can't continue in a life of sin and think that the Lord will overlook it. That repentance means to turn aside from it, to have no love for it anymore, to desire in faith and in conviction to allow His Word to lead you, to take Him as He is. Then confess His name as the Son of God and be buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you would wish, if it would be needful in your life to do that today, why do you wait? Why do you delay? If you have known the blessedness of faithfulness with the Lord at some former time in life, but as of today, you have begun to live in a way that's brought reproach upon Jesus, that's brought reproach upon the church, that's brought reproach upon what you know you should be standing for, then make a change. I say that because you need to take Jesus as He is. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. And if we could pray on your behalf today in light of forgiveness of sins that you've known, that have committed and known in a public way, we'd be delighted to do that. If in any way we could be of assistance this day, may I suggest that one of the words that should be constantly upon our heart is, we must take Him as He is. Now that's what those apostles did. They took Him as He was. And certainly, He ultimately delivered them from the storm on that sea. May I offer this thought as we close the lesson? He will deliver us from whatever storms we face if we will take Him as He is. If you need to do that today, the song of encouragement has been announced, and we look forward to offering assistance and help in any way we can if you'll simply let us know the way we can do that. And do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.